going to move into our lesson this morning. We have been going through the Gospel of John. We're going to wrap up John chapter 12 this morning. And so I hope you'll join me in the text. We're in John chapter 12. Let me just remind you of how far we got into the text last week. We talked about this curious story where some Greeks, some non-Jewish people who were in Jerusalem, wanted an audience with Jesus, and it prompts this this monologue that Jesus gives about exactly what God is doing through him at the time, and he looks forward to the time when he will draw all people to himself through the sacrifice that he's preparing to make. And so it's a conversation he has about his coming death. And of course, people are not prepared to hear that yet. We talked about that a little bit last week. We're going to continue to talk about that this morning. But this is where we ended last week in the text. In verses 35 and 36 of John chapter 12, we read this. Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light. And so we've got this call to belief from Jesus himself. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of of light. And then that story ends with this. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. So you've got this curious case of people seeking Jesus, people not understanding what's going on, and Jesus hiding himself from the people. And it leaves us asking this question, will Jesus remain hidden forever? Are people ever going to figure out who he really is? And who is it exactly that's going to believe throughout this process? And so we get into the text that we're going to cover today. We're going to finish chapter 12. And it begins with this in verse 37. John tells us, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence. And let me pause right there because this serves as kind of a way of John bringing Jesus' public ministry to a close. For three years now, Jesus has been preaching. He has been teaching. He has been performing miracles. He has been preparing the people for the coming of the kingdom of God. They've had three years to come to terms with what he's teaching them at this point in time. And now he's down to his final days. There's just a few days between this moment and the crucifixion. And so as John brings that public ministry to a close, he reminds us, even after everything Jesus had done in their presence, they still would not believe in him. There are still those who do not believe that Jesus is Messiah, Son of God. They're having a hard time coming to terms with everything that Jesus is claiming and everything Jesus is doing, and their minds are spinning, and they're struggling with all this. And the reason John puts that in here is to get us thinking about belief, our own belief. Who among us believes the report that John gives us? It reminds me of how John opens his gospel back in the prologue, and we're going to reference this a couple times this morning. In verses 9 through 11, John writes, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. I don't think that part surprises us much. The idea that the world would not understand Jesus when he stands in front of them. But what he says next does give us trouble. He came to that which his own. Who's, what group of people is he, is he referring to there? The Israelites, the Jewish people, those to whom the promises had been given. He came to his own, but his own did not what? Receive him. When we're in John chapter 12 and John makes this statement, 
that even though he did all these things in their presence, they still did not believe him. He's referring to the Israelite people. He's referring to those Jews in Jerusalem at the time. They still did not believe him. And you can imagine by the time John sits down and pens this gospel account, he's had a lot of years to reflect on this very phenomenon. How is it that when the Messiah promised to the Jewish people comes in their midst, those very same people did not recognize him or believe in him? What does that say about the providence of God? What does that say about the sovereignty of God? What does that say about God's will as it's carried out on the earth that even when God fulfilled his promise, God's own people didn't see it? Is that a shortcoming on God's behalf or does it say something about the nature and the character of people? And John is wanting us to reflect on all these questions. And so what do we make out of this idea that the Jews reject, rejected Jesus when he stood in their midst. And John addresses this a couple different ways. He says, number one, this shouldn't surprise us because this was to fulfill the words of Isaiah the prophet. In other words, this is exactly what God told you was going to happen. And he's been telling you this for a long time. This is not surprising. This is what we should have expected all along. And what he does is he quotes from Isaiah chapter 53 in verse 1. If you remember last week's lesson, I told you that in the previous text in John chapter 12, that language John uses is making us think about the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53. And here he brings us right back to that passage because he's quoting from it. This is what he says, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed who will believe the report that goes out when the suffering servant shows up when messiah steps foot on earth and makes himself known who will believe his message that's the question something interesting happens in acts chapter 8 in acts chapter 8 the early church is exploding within the walls of jerusalem all of these israelites that didn't believe are now coming to belief and the church is growing, but in the beginning of Acts chapter 8, a, a man named Saul begins a persecution against the church. The same Saul that would go on to become the Paul that wrote all of these beautiful letters in our New Testament, by the way. But he begins a persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and the Christians scatter. But as they scatter, they take the good news of Jesus with them. And you get halfway through Acts chapter 8, and we find a story about one of those early Christians named Philip. And Philip was told by the Spirit to go down to a desert road and to meet up with a man traveling in a chariot who was returning from Jerusalem, where he had been worshiping, going back home to Ethiopia. And as he finds this man in his chariot, the man is reading from, guess what? Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. And he's reading it, but he's struggling with it. And Philip comes up to him and he says, do you know what you're reading? You remember what the man said? How can I unless someone explains it to me? And he's got a specific question. His question is this. Who is this man talking about? Himself or somebody else? And it says, beginning with that passage, Philip preached Jesus to him. In other words, the Holy Spirit saw it fit that if there was one passage in Scripture you were going to use to tell the story of Jesus to help it all make sense, Everything that this man had seen transpire in Jerusalem, all of the chaos that ensued after the death 
of this man Jesus of Nazareth, if you're going to use one passage to help it all make sense, Isaiah 53 is it. And he uses that passage to preach Jesus to this man. So what is it about this passage, Isaiah 53, that helps us understand who Jesus was? Well, there's a few things I want to point out. And first of all, let's read through this together. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to begin actually in chapter 52 in verse 13, because this is where this section actually begins. I'm going to read through it. And if you would, just kind of take mental note of some of the things that stand out in your mind. And we'll talk about them in just a second. So Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though we had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus as told in the gospel, then that language should jump off the page at you because you see so much of Jesus in those words. But for a group of people who had not yet witnessed the death of Jesus, who had not yet witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, who had not yet had time to come to terms with everything that was transpiring, this is not on their agenda. In their mind, Messiah is not found in Isaiah chapter 53. He is, but not the way they think. And so they're struggling with all of this. But this is what John is telling us. The reason he quotes from this passage is he's saying, who's going to believe this? If you tell them ahead of time, this is what Messiah is going to look like, who's going to believe 
the, the Messiah is going to suffer in this way. That's not what the king of the universe looks like. It just doesn't make any sense. And so there's a few things I want to point out in this passage that should cause us to pay attention. Number one, what do we learn about the suffering servant? From verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind. We're coming off the heels here earlier in chapter 12 of the triumphal entry. Jesus enters in Jerusalem as royalty, son of David, and they lay the palm branches on the ground. This is the king we're looking for. And yet a few days later, crucify him, crucify him. When he didn't meet expectations, he's despised and rejected by mankind. Number two, in verse seven, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Number three, in verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. None of this is a surprise to God. God didn't send Jesus and then stand back in shock as the Jewish people rejected him. He knew that's exactly what was going to happen. And according to Isaiah, this is all part of God's plan. And finally, if you go back to the way this whole passage is introduced in 52.13, in spite of all of this, and through all of this, he will be highly exalted. And this is at the heart of John's gospel, the struggle that we all have to make sense out of the gospel. How does death equal victory? And how does humiliation equal exaltation? But it does in Jesus. And this is the beauty of God's plan as it unfolds. So the first thing John wants to tell us is don't be surprised that he was rejected by his own people. Because God told us that's what was going to happen. And number two, he says this. He quotes from another place in Isaiah. For this reason they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, and this comes from chapter 6, this is part of the passage that Danny read for us this, this morning. In, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this vision of the throne room of God where God's glory fills the temple. And he hears God ask the question, who will go? And Isaiah responds with what? Here I am, Lord, send me. You can imagine, okay, God's asking for somebody to go on his behalf, and you jump up with excitement. I'm ready, send me. And then God's going to tell you about all the amazing things that are going to happen, right? Except that's not what he told Isaiah. This is what he tells Isaiah. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. What he tells Isaiah is actually, through your preaching, the people are going to become dull of hearing. And you're not going to find this mass repentance. In fact, just the opposite is going to happen. They're not going to listen to you. And Isaiah asked, but for how long, God? He says, until destruction happens. God is bringing judgment on Israel. But God's word doesn't end with judgment, does it? And so he's got something else in store for his people. John uses that passage and applies it to what's happening here, in the role of prophet, Jesus is sharing God's word with the people and they're not receiving the word. This shouldn't come as a surprise because that's the pattern we find with all of the prophets, is it not? That they're rejected by God's own people. Jesus himself said as much to the Israelites. Which one of the prophets did you not reject? So this shouldn't come as a surprise. This is what God's people do to the prophets. He sends them. They reject the words of the prophets. 
Here is the thing that's difficult to wrap our minds around. I wrote this and rewrote it a hundred different times to try to get some wording that would make sense, but it's confusing on purpose. Because I want you to think about something, okay? So this is what I came up with. God hardened the hearts of the people so that they would reject Jesus and crucify him. That crucifixion was according to God's plan and led to the offer of salvation to all who believe even those who rejected Jesus. How is it that that makes sense? That God is behind this rejection, which led to the death of His own Son, but He uses the death of His own Son as a way to bring back those who rejected Him. Such is the grace and mercy of our God, right? It makes your brain spin to think about the way God's plan unfolds among us. How is God going to use broken people? Well, he's going to use us in ways that we can't even fathom. And I want you to think about that for a minute. Josh in his class this morning actually already referenced this passage, and I'm glad he did. It is a challenging chapter in a challenging book. In Romans chapter 9, Paul is talking about God's sovereign will and how to wrap our minds around the things that God does and the way that he uses people. And he's talking about this same conundrum. How is it that so many of the Israelites have rejected the very promise God fulfilled through them? And it's at the beginning of this passage, Josh pointed out this morning, where Paul talks about his own passion for helping his countrymen come to faith and makes the bold statement that I would give up my own salvation if it meant that they might come to Christ. But in struggling to make sense of all that, he says this, what shall we say then to the idea that God's own people rejected him? Is God unjust, he asks. Not at all. And we could ask the same question here. John, you're telling me that the reason the Israelites rejected Jesus is because God himself hardened their hearts and made it so that they couldn't understand what Jesus was saying. What does that say about God? Is he unjust because of that? Listen to Paul's answer. Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And aren't you thankful that we serve a merciful God? That Jesus died on the cross for the very people who put him on the cross. That's the nature of the God that we serve. Later on in this passage, Paul is going to say something that challenges us to our core. If we are the clay... And he is the potter. What right does the clay have to say to the potter, why did you make me this way? When it comes to understanding the sovereign will of our God, we are so uncomfortable letting it remain a mystery that we do everything in our will to rationalize it. And I would just encourage you that sometimes it's okay to sit at the feet of your creator and look at, up at him with so much awe that all you can say is, I don't get it. But I love you, and I trust you, and I'm thankful for your mercy. John is trying to get us to understand one very simple point, that God is at work in all of this. And God is at work in all of this in order to redeem us back to himself. And God's going to do that whether we're on board or not. And so we came up with a plan that even when we make ourselves enemies of God, God saves us. What a remarkable God that we serve.
Isaiah said this, John says, as kind of an afterthought, because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Isaiah himself serves as a witness to the glory of the coming Messiah. And John is seen himself in that same role. Now it's John's turn to serve as a witness to the glory that he saw revealed in Jesus as he followed him those years. And we're going to talk about how that relates to us in just a moment. We go on in the text, verses 42 and 43, yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But hold on a second, John's saying, listen, there's more to say about this problem of unbelief because it wasn't like everyone just out of hand rejected him. There were those even among the, the, the leaders of the Jewish people who did actually believe in what Jesus was saying. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is this. Because of the Pharisees, the ruling class, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. And then John perfectly summarizes not just their problem, but our problem. For they loved human praise more than the praise from God. And John presents us with a question here. What good is a faith that you're not willing to openly acknowledge? Jesus is not looking for private followers. He's looking for public followers. Those of us who are so confident in his identity that we would be willing to boldly proclaim it, regardless of who believed us. We go on. Then Jesus cried out, One more final call to belief from the mouth of the Savior himself. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, does not believe in me only. And here we get to the heart of the matter of belief and faith. Why is it so important that we put our belief in the identity of Jesus? Listen to what he says. When you believe in me, you're not just believing in me, you're believing in the one who sent me. Belief in me is belief in my Father. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. You want to see God, you want to know God the Father, look to me because I will show him to you. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. You cannot know God the Father without knowing Jesus the Son. This is what John is trying to get us to understand. Back again in the prologue, he introduces us to this idea in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. And that's what Jesus is proclaiming here in the last days of his life on earth. Believe in me, because it's only through belief in me that you can come to know the one who sent me. And then he says this, if anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I don't judge that person. What he's saying is, I didn't come for judgment now. I'm not standing here as a judge before you now. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. My goal here is salvation, but make no mistake about it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them on the last day. You have heard what I have proclaimed to you. And if you choose to reject that, there will come a day where you will stand in judgment because of that. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Are you willing to believe the one who sent me? 
So that's our text. But a few things I want to think about in reflecting on this. Number one, I want you to think just critically for a moment about John's message. And again, how he takes the role of prophet in all this. If, if Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus and proclaims that glory and is rejected because of it, I think John sees himself in that same role. I'm here to tell the world about the glory revealed to me through Jesus, the Son. And this is a very personal story for John. He's telling the story of Jesus, the Messiah, but he's telling it in very personal terms because it would be impossible for him not to tell this story in a personal way. In 1 John chapter 1, this is how he begins that epistle. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. I'm telling you about Jesus, but I'm telling you about the Jesus that I saw, that I heard, that I Witness. This isn't just the story of Jesus. This is the story of Jesus as told by one of his closest friends, by one of his closest followers, by a man who saw him, who leaned against his bosom, who ate with him, who learned from him, who watched him die in agony. Of course this is a personal story for John. And so as John reflects on all of that, as John reflects on the idea that he himself was embedded in a community of people who believed that they had an intimate relationship with God the Father and came to realize that he never really knew God until he knew the Son. As he's reflecting on all of that, he's probably asking the question that's asked in Isaiah. Who's going to believe my story? Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Why did John write this book? We've talked about this a bunch. We're going to continue to talk about it. Why, so many years after the synoptics have been written, did John write another gospel? He didn't do it to correct the synoptics. He did it to supplement them. But why? Why was that even needed? Because apparently there were still people who were yet to be convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And so for John, he says, there's a lot of stuff I could have written. I recorded this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's still a conversation about belief and about belief in Jesus specifically. So this becomes our message today. And we might not be able to tell the story the same way that John did. Because we didn't experience Jesus the same way John experienced him. We didn't touch him. We didn't see him with our eyes. We didn't sit at his feet and listen to him preach. But have we experienced Jesus? Y'all sleeping on me this morning? Have we experienced Jesus? Yes. Look at what's happened just over the last few weeks and continues to happen on a regular basis as God is adding to his church those who are being saved. Are you seeing Jesus at work? Have you experienced him in your own life? Is your life different today than it was before you met the Messiah? Anybody? Yes. 
So this is a personal story for us too. We might not tell it the same way, but we're telling the story of Jesus. And so we ask the same question, who will believe our message? And I'm telling you, sometimes it's easy to get discouraged and think, well, nobody. Nobody believes me. So what's the point? So we start to be quiet about our message. But there are those among us seeking Jesus. There are those among us who want to know God the Father and they see Him finally revealed in the Son in a way they've never seen before. There are those among us and those who will be among us in the future that we haven't even met yet that God will bring to us that are looking for a relationship with their Savior. And they will believe our message. So we have to be bold in the story that we tell. Let's continue to share that good news with anyone who will listen. Because God is at work in powerful ways. And then one last thing I want us to think about before we wrap this up. Okay, we are a long ways into the Gospel of John. I was going to look up how many weeks I've been preaching out of John. I decided not to do it because I don't want you to realize how many weeks we've been going through John. All right, But it's been a lot. And the greatest gift you have given me in my time here is the opportunity to spend this much time embedded in the gospel. But you might be asking yourself, okay, we're this far into John. Really? We're still going to talk about belief? Can't we move on to something deeper, more meaningful? Can't we get into the, the real meat of the word? And No, we can't. <laughs> Not yet. We're going we're gonna to plan ourselves in this gospel for as long as God wants us to be here because belief in Jesus is foundational. It is foundational. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, and he has become the chief cornerstone. Paul said that, or excuse me, Peter said that boldly in Acts chapter 4, as he and John are put on trial, basically, for having healed a man. And they asked him, point blank, by whose power or authority do you do this? And he said, make no mistake about it, Jesus of Nazareth, that you guys put to death, it is through his power and authority that this man stands well before you today. And by the way, the stone that you guys rejected, the one you looked at and said, that's not good enough for this building, God took that stone and made it the chief cornerstone. The whole building rests upon that stone. Salvation is found in no one else, he says. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which... We must be saved. I know you know this, but let me remind you this morning. We have to continually lay this foundation. Not once and then move on. Continually lay this foundation. Because if this is not our foundation, if the identity of Jesus Christ is not the foundation of our faith, then our faith is misplaced. Let me give you just two examples quickly. You study with someone and you convert them. What have you converted them to? If all of our study revolves around the identity of the church, then we have converted someone to the church. And there are a lot of people in this world who have been converted to a church, whatever version of the church is to them. But what happens when you put all of your faith in the church as an institution? If I'm converted to an institution, and I become a disciple of an institution, what do we know about institutions? Institutions eventually disappoint us. And it's easy to become disillusioned by institutions. If we're not careful, 
we make disciples of an institution. And the institution becomes characterized more than anything else by the building that represents the institution. And pretty soon you get to a place where you've got a great big building and Jesus is nothing more than an ornament that hangs on the wall of that institution. We are not making disciples of the church. Is the church a beautiful thing? Boy, guys, come on, wake up. Is the church a beautiful thing? Yes. Are you glad to be a part of God's church? I hope you are. And we need to teach people about the church and the nature of the church and what makes the church unique and why it's awesome to be a part of the church, but we are bringing people to Christ. And when we bring people to Christ and he adds them to his body, then we're not making disciples of an institution. We're helping people build a relationship with their God and their Savior. And that relationship does not disappoint. What about behavior? What about lifestyle choices? What about morality? Are we converting people to a specific way of living your life? Kinda? Yeah? Is it important how disciples live? Does our behavior matter? Do our choices matter? Yes, obviously. But if you bring someone in and you spend all this time studying with them and you convince them, listen, this is how you have to live your life. But that version of morality, those lifestyle choices aren't built on a foundation of trust in Jesus Christ. There's no lifestyle on earth that has the power to save a person. Because no matter how good you are, what does Paul remind us of in Romans chapter 3? There is none good, no, not one. And we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. If your faith is in a certain version of morality, and in your mind salvation is accomplished by reaching the heights of that version of morality, you will only set yourself up for heartbreak over and over and over again because your own shortcomings will always be present in front of you. You will constantly be reminded of the fact that you cannot reach the pinnacle of human behavior. Salvation is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Why do we see so many of our young people leave the church? Because maybe we spent so much time trying to convince them to stay in church and be good people that we forgot to convince them that Jesus is Christ. I would encourage you to think about those things with me this morning. Who will believe our report? Maybe there's some here this morning that are ready to believe, that are ready to trust, that are ready to take that first step into faith, that are ready to confess that Jesus is the Christ, that are ready to put him on in baptism and begin life anew. If you're ready to make that decision this morning, we want to give you the opportunity to act on that right now, right here. If you would like to give your life to Christ this morning, won't you let us know? Let's stand, let's sing this song together, and let's trust in God to be at work through his church. Will you stand and you sing with me now? You're rich in love and you're slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness I will keep on seeing Ten thousand reasons for my heart to find Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, oh 
Worship your holy name. 